0: stuff podcasts hi i'm michael wright and welcome to the long read from stuff this week's story is called premies it's by stuff senior writer nikki mcdonald who joins me now hi nikki hi michael This uh, story, Premies, it's the definition of long form. Uh, Tell us a bit about this project.
1: Yes, well, it's been a long project. So this started in 2005 and um, I picked up with five families with children of varying ages who were all very premature, so kind of in the 24 to 25 weeks gestation. And I've followed them amazingly for, for 16 years and tracked their progress along the way.
0: Yes, that's that's a long time. Uh, was it always the plan to kind of follow them in this way?
1: I can't honestly remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think probably um, it was originally triggered by the British health authorities to change their policy and to introduce a, a, an arbitrary cutoff, probably at 24 weeks for resuscitating premature babies. So I was interested in... How those babies or babies of that kind of age um, did in real life, uh, and obviously it became a longer project as I picked up with them later, and you know, in, in five years' time.
0: So you've stayed in touch with these families. Have you? You wrote the initial story back around 2005, and that's what 17 years ago. Have you stayed in touch with them all since then?
1: Yes. So I wrote the initial story, and then five years later, I thought it would be interesting to go back and and see how they're doing because obviously what's interesting about premature babies is the fact that you can't predict how they're going to do. So um, at different ages and stages, they will have different challenges. So I went back to them after five years and then I went back to them after 10 years and this was supposed to be a 15 year catch up, but uh, COVID got in the way.
0: Like everything else. Um, How, I mean most reporters won't have done something like this, followed a story for so long. Can you give us an idea how much harder or different is it to follow someone like this? How How is it different to just you know, writing you know, a normal feature, if you like?
1: Well, it's been an amazing privilege, really, because you get to see the development of, of these children. And this time around has been the first opportunity that I've had to really talk to the children themselves and to get their perspective um, now that they're really young adults so it's yeah it's just been an incredible process and this time around I went back and looked at some of the early photographs and you kind of remember I mean Charlotte I literally met on the day that she was leaving the neonatal intensive care unit and some of the others you know they, they were still walking around with oxygen bottles and now they're kind of 18 20 year old young people who are making their own way in the world so yeah it's been an amazing process.
0: All right, thanks, Nikki. Let's hear from them. Here is Nikki with a bit of strong language, reading her story, Premies.
1: It's 17 years since the worst day of Liz Rose's life, the day she knew she would lose her baby. A womb infection terminated her pregnancy at 23 and a half weeks, expelling a 650 gram echo of a child from its protective cocoon. Liz had no concept that a fetus so underdone could even have a chance at life. That's it, she thought. But the tiny girl emerged alive. Doctors gave her a 50-50 chance of survival. They said she'd almost definitely have the movement disorder cerebral palsy and severe learning difficulties. They said she'd be lucky to grow to five feet tall. Maybe they hadn't noticed the baby's outsized feet. Beside Liz's Converse sneakers at the foot of the couch today are a second pair. At size 9.5 to 10, they're longer than that barely baby's 23 centimeter span from head to heel. They're attached to a 5'17 with long, bouncing curls and a cheeky laugh, who races her sister on dirt bikes, plays drums and loves drama. It's kind of crazy to think I was born that early, Charlotte Dixon says in her soft, breathy voice, and I haven't got, really, one of those issues that I could have got. When she emerged into this world on the precipice of survivability, Charlotte couldn't breathe or feed herself, Her skin was as fragile as rice paper. Had she been born a decade, maybe even five years earlier, this miracle of modern medicine would not be here. Charlotte's first weeks took her to hell and back with an infection, brain bleed and surgery. While her dad John got stuck in, changing nappies, Liz resisted attachment, fearing Charlotte was not here to stay. Then, at about two weeks... Liz held her baby against her chest for the first of 200 kangaroo cuddles. She reckons the doctors only let her hold Charlotte because they thought she wasn't going to make it. But after that touch of skin on skin, there was no going back. In 1986, Otago University child health professor Brian Darlow started a long-term study of a year's worth of very low birth weight babies. The maximum qualifying weight was 1,500 grams, roughly equivalent to 30 to 32 weeks gestation, or two months early. Nine babies were born alive at 24 weeks, of whom only two survived. There were only two survivors as well, at 500 to 600 grams. On those numbers, there would be no Charlotte Dixon. It's like we now say today's 70 is yesterday's 60, Darlow says. It's the same with these small babies. As neonatal intensive care has improved, the threshold for resuscitating early babies has crept ever lower. And with it has come global debate about when enough is enough. Because every day earlier brings added risk. The risk of death, lifelong disability, and developmental problems. There's no international consensus. The United Kingdom resuscitates babies born from 23 to 24 weeks. Sweden treats 22 weeks as viable, and the Netherlands considers 24 to 26 weeks the grey area. A register of the world's tiniest babies records three born at 21 weeks, all in the United States. In New Zealand, early birth is the second biggest baby killer, claiming about 100 lives every year. Māori, Pacific and Indian babies, and those from poorer areas, are more likely to die. Smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, infections, older mums and having twins or triplets all increase the risk of premature labour. In 2019, national guidelines set the cusp of viability at 23 weeks. At that point, the foetus normally weighs about as much as a packet of dried pasta and measures about 29 centimetres from head to heel. Its fingertips have prints, but its lungs are still forming. Developmental consequences of birth at these extremes of gestation remain a concern, the guidelines note. And the potential long-term effects of periviable, borderline, birth on the whānau are considerable. About 1 in 200 pregnancies ends extremely prematurely, before 28 weeks gestation. For births on the margin of survival, from 23 weeks to 24 weeks and 6 days, Parents have a say in whether doctors try to save the baby or switch to palliative care. Behind every statistic is a family facing months staring at an incubator, watching, waiting, hoping, wondering what the future will bring, wondering if they made the right choice. Charlotte flicks her phone to find the photo board she made for her drama exam, where she talked about premature baby support charity. The Neonatal Trust. She pulled together a numbers panel that tells the story of her first six months better than any words. With those underdeveloped lungs, she spent 26 days on a ventilator just to be able to breathe. It took 47 days of tube feeding to grow to one kilogram, nine blood transfusions, 132 days in neonatal intensive care, 220 days of oxygen support. The physical trauma has left its mark. The faded slashes of surgery and tubes poked through papery skin. When I was younger, I did feel a bit insecure, I guess, Charlotte says, because of the scars I'd got on my body. That's what has been emotional. There have been other impacts. Charlotte's fine motor skills lagged. At ten, she struggled with Lego, while her sister, who was three years younger... "'stacked bricks with ease. "'She took longer to speak and read "'and has had learning challenges. "'But the processing delay at age 10, "'the brain slowly ticking over when asked a question, "'has gone now. "'When I was younger, "'I did have more difficulties with learning,' Charlotte says. "'But I feel like, as I've got older, "'I've been getting better.' "'Drama helped build her confidence. "'She loves the end-of-year productions. "'She's done Harry Potter and James and the Giant Peach,' and played a dwarf in Snow White. That might have been insulting if she wasn't actually taller than her mum. She's played drums and jazz and rock bands, and she still loves getting out on the family's Wellington lifestyle block, walking Harry the Spoodle and Gus the Heading Dog, or helping mum and dad around the property. At school, she's been studying English, maths, science, geography, food tech and hospitality. She has some teacher-age help. Her nana a retired teacher, acts as her tutor. Sometimes she thinks about the fact she was born too soon when she's struggling and can't get help. While Charlotte's school has been amazing, it can be hard to get support, Liz says. A lot of the education system is set up for kids that have a thing, dyspraxia, dyslexia, and if you don't have a label to attach to a kid that has got learning delays or challenges, it's a lot harder to get access to support. Charlotte doesn't know yet what she might want to be. When she talked to stuff six years ago, as she clomped around in gear from her favourite hunting and fishing store, she wanted to be a sheep farmer. She cackles at the memory. I guess there's that option, she says. Otherwise, maybe animal care, or something outdoors. When she finds her thing, she will do well, Liz says. Being alive and thriving is a good start. She's already surpassed Liz and John's wildest expectations. I'm very thankful that she's just such a happy, well-adjusted kid, Liz says, and comfortable in her own skin. You can't imagine how horrible it is to take the stand and be treated like you're the one in the wrong, especially in a sexual crime situation. From Bird of Paradise for stuff, this is Tell Me About It going behind the scenes of our journalism to the voices of real people whose stories make the news. You're just so out of control of it, you know. I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, no, why can no one actually see
0: who I am? With me, Kirsty Johnston, Michelle Duff, and our producer, Noel McCarthy. Can I ask you a question that makes seem quite basic? Has it all been worth it? From a justice point of view, I would still struggle to say that right now, but it's still raw.
1: Tell Me About it, it was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, the raising of two tiny humans was, quite literally, filed alongside carnival freak shows. Premature and weekly babies, hatching in heated boxes modelled on chicken incubators, were shopped around world fairs from the 1890s before becoming a permanent exhibition at New York Amusement Park, Coney Island. A sceptical article in New Zealand's Evening Star in October 1893 headlined The Baby Incubator tells of a puny baby born three months too early with a face that bore unmistakable signs of death. After six weeks in a glass-sided incubator heated by a lamp, the two-and-a-half-pound babe supposedly doubled its weight. All this at a time when up to one in four American infants did not live to celebrate their first birthday. The tale ends thus abruptly, the article goes, probably because the reporter suddenly remembered that there is a limit to the credulity of even American newspaper readers. A 1901 report in the Ashburton Guardian details the process, with babies arriving in a comatose condition, being brought back to vitality with a bath in water and mustard and two drops of brandy in their mouths, before being rubbed with alcohol and popped in the incubator. But it wasn't fantasy. The baby incubator was invented in 1880 by French obstetrician Stéphane Tarnier, based on Paris Zoo's Chicken Hatcher. The tiny babies were warmed by a hot water reservoir below, A French colleague, or perhaps rival, Alexandre Lyon, went one better, adding a thermostat and ventilation system. But his model was pricey, so he started charging 50 centimes, or half of one franc, for the intrigue of viewing a veritable child hatchery. It was this model that wowed visitors at the Berlin Exposition of 1896, and ended in the Bizarre Coney Island exhibition, a working premature baby unit inside a fun fair which endured until the 1940s. It's not clear when baby incubators arrived in New Zealand, although a Northern Advocate report in March 1941 announces baby's life saved by incubator. A dying 2-pound, 14-ounce baby, born at Auckland Hospital, was fed and tended in a shock cradle, or incubator, and had grown to four and a half pounds. But the first proper neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU, was not established here until the early 70s, in Dunedin. By then, neonatology was emerging as a new profession, and Kiwis were already at the forefront of one of its earliest revolutions. In the 1950s, obstetrician Graham Liggins decided to investigate what prompted labour, in the hope of finding a way to prevent babies popping out early. Initially experimenting on sheep, he discovered that the fetus's production of the hormone cortisol can trigger labour. But the unexpected survival of a too-early lamb suggested it also did something else, helped rapidly mature lungs that should be too undeveloped to inflate. In a clinical trial run with Auckland paediatrician Ross Howey, Liggins investigated whether giving women corticosteroids in premature labour could prevent the respiratory distress syndrome that killed many premature babies. Their 1972 research paper showed the treatment reduced the baby death rate almost fivefold. Howie also led the charge to establish a national neonatal intensive care network in the early 1980s. The five main hospitals with prem baby units, Auckland, Waikato, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin, set up transport systems so early babies could be saved wherever they were born. But the prognosis for very premature babies remained grim. Vaughan Richardson started as a junior doctor at Wellington Hospital in the 1970s and became a neonatal consultant in 1986. In those days, baby incubators were just incapable of looking after the tiniest babies. When I started out as a junior, everything was experimental, he says. Every place did something a bit different, and you gave it your best shot. The uncertainty is the killer. Just as doctors predicted Charlotte would be tiny and severely disabled, no one can tell the parents of early babies exactly what to expect. Wellington neonatologist and Otago University associate professor Max Berry has spent much of her career trying to understand the consequences of being born early. At the moment, she says, your life course well-being is contingent on gestation. And that's nuts. Her 2018 study of 760,000 births from 1998 to 2015 measured survival and outcomes by the week of pregnancy babies were born at. Just over half of those resuscitated at 23 weeks were still alive at 10 years, and about two thirds of 24 weekers survived. But even for those who survive, there is a cost. Barry's research found premature birth was associated with worse survival health, educational, and social outcomes. However, most extremely premature babies did not need special school support and were able to sit their national high school exams. The problem is, there's no manual for who gets what. Birth weight and stage of pregnancy are starting points, but Charlotte's defiance of her grim prognosis is evidence that no one really knows. The decision about whether to resuscitate a baby has to be shared, Barry says. Sometimes doctors and parents will disagree, and that's healthy. Oftentimes, families now will opt for a pragmatic approach, which is, do what we can. If we get the child into intensive care, try and stabilise, try and optimise ventilation and blood pressure, support the nutrition, and see how things pan out. And if things are progressing well, and the baby is stabilising, fantastic. I mean... It's still the roller coaster for them in terms of emotional turmoil. Even a good day in Nikku is really not a good day. It's just less bad than some of the other days they've had. Are there babies who ended up with such poor quality of life that she wished they hadn't resuscitated them? It's not my place to say, Barry says. We value people in a whole myriad of different ways, as we should. I think the key thing for me is that our job is to be transparent, about what we do. And for these parents, I think the most courageous thing that I see them do over and over again is coming back in when their baby is in extremis and just moment by moment, they don't know what they're going to find. And having that courage to front up to that uncertainty and live that uncertainty, hour after day, after week, after month, it's truly humbling to watch the way that they steel themselves in order to meet the needs of their child and often at great personal cost to themselves. It's really, really hard. I don't think we acknowledge it enough. When his triplets arrived at 24 weeks, David Burns remembers the brutal shock of it, the dawning reality. I always remember being told right at the beginning that there was a 25% chance of fatality or death, 25% of severely disabled, 25% with some minor disability, and 25% of surviving with no disability. David and Gina's triplets, Micah, Mac, and India, ticked three of the four boxes. The full spectrum of the pain, delight, and struggle of extremely premature babies in one family. There was no question of not resuscitating, because they were a reasonable birth weight. David used to tell Mac and India... That last born Micah stayed back to let them go ahead. She died three days after birth of a brain bleed. At twenty eight weeks, Mac suffered a perforated bowel. I'm looking and going, that boy is in so much pain, he's in a critical situation. There's an element, I'd have to be honest, that it would be better that he didn't survive. I try not to think of myself as a guy with a disability, Max says, sporting a trendy mullet, half a tee in the shadow of a moustache. On weekdays, the 19-year-old catches the bus to uni to a supported living course. On Mondays, he goes to a gym specialising in people with disabilities. He hops on the rowing machine, drags a tyre on a rubber band, does body slams and burpees. He likes to jog at the park and catch up with friends. He watches the NBA – Rooting for the Lakers or Brooklyn Nets. He's a big tennis guy, he says with a broad grin. Mac has cerebral palsy, a movement disorder caused by irregular brain development that is one of the risks of very premature birth. As he grew, his muscles tightened and he became knock kneed, needing intermittent treatments with relaxant Botox. His legs were then set in plaster for a week to help them stretch. He's come so very, very far from the kid who at three still couldn't talk, from the undercooked baby in so much pain, his father thought it might be kinder to end it all. I had a lot of obstacles to get past, he says matter-of-factly. Like I had Botox for all my life, I had surgeries, I also had braces on for a couple of years. So I got a lot of obstacles that I overcome to get to where I am. But he's happy with his life. When he started at uni last year, he was nervous, because he didn't know if he would make any friends. But he did. He's learning skills, learning about the world, like how you write a CV. He doesn't know where he'll be in 10 years. He's just enjoying the now and trying not to think about what might have been had he been able to develop fully in the safe cave of his mother's belly. Sometimes I think about what would have happened if I wasn't born with a disability, where I would go, whether I'd be in a different uni. But I just try not to think. I just tried to be just a normal guy. Parents of premature babies often talk about grief and guilt. Charlotte's mum Liz says it too, the constant wondering about what would have been. Like Mac, David tries not to venture down that road. And he wouldn't change his decisions, apart from not using the fertility pills that resulted in triplets in the first place. If you spend any time contemplating what could have been, And you do do it. You look at all of his character that's deep within and you know what that could have meant to an able-bodied person. But if you go down that track, it's fruitless and not good for him or anyone else. For me, I look at the wonderful young man and the progress the guy makes. We're in a blended family now and the able-bodied kids don't do what he does, even around independence. He fiercely wants to do things himself. How he makes a peanut butter sandwich. It's pretty easy to get a whole lot of bloody peanut butter and put it between two bits of white bread and stick it in a lunchbox. And that's what he does. Whereas I'm sitting there thinking, you want to put butter and you want to cut it nicely and wrap it. He's never going to be able to do that. But he gets up every day and does that. The other kids don't. All kids, they take their smarts for granted. He's using his full potential to the max. So that's how I look at him. Every day is progress, and he surprises me, and he surprises all of us. Down in Wellington, Mac's sister India is also at uni, majoring in marketing. It's pretty easy, she says. Born at 640 grams, India came out smaller than Mac. She grew late, but now she's taller, at 168 centimetres. Nothing in her appearance betrays her untimely entry into the world, but the gravel in her voice is a constant reminder. It's quiet, husky, as if she's recovering from a cold. Every single day someone asks about it, probably three times a day. Are you sick? Talk louder. It's annoying, she says. She works in retail and customers can be mean about it. But if that's the price for being alive... It's probably damaged from all the tubes, she says. She got it checked out in Year 6 the only time she remembers going to hospital, although Mac was in and out all the time. She remembers having learning support in years seven and eight. Even now, she says she's not that smart, but she works hard to get good grades. She was always sporty, playing netball and lacrosse at school, doing gymnastics, and she never felt different. It's crazy that I did make it, she says. It was pretty early. Sometimes I think about what it would be like if we weren't preterm, if we were born at the right time. I reckon it would be a lot different. In terms of my parents, my brother, I'd probably still have a sister. But for people having premature babies, I don't know. I think me and Mac are pretty good now. I more think of it as a big deal for my mum and dad. It was really traumatising for them. And obviously, they broke up because of it. I mean, it's not my fault, but... David doesn't blame the trauma of those early years for the breakup of his marriage, but it certainly takes a toll. He remembers a paediatrician describing it as a minefield. In the beginning, the mines are very close together. As you move forward, they become further apart. You go into a very dark room, and you slowly come out the other side. Some people come out faster than others. I would never say that my marriage fell apart because of it even though you'll read statistics that will say that. But you wouldn't wish it on anybody, on any relationship. It's just so hard. Looking at India, David could never say that 24 weeks is too soon to be born. But he has reservations. I do think what you're trying to make survive at an early age is fraught. I think post-26 weeks, you're good. But when people are saying... I survived at 23 weeks. I'm still going, whoa, you've survived, but you've still got a road ahead of you. Max Berry reckons we've pushed the boundary of viability to the limit, at least for now. Size is the limiting factor. Before 23 weeks, the lungs are mostly not developed enough and the skin is too immature, too delicate to be hung with tubes. If your lungs are not physically at a state where they can absorb oxygen, it doesn't matter what we do with ventilators. So there are some anatomical, physiological limitations in what we can achieve. And we're pretty much bumping up against those at the moment. Former Wellington NICU boss Vaughan Richardson, who retired in 2021, agrees. But marvels at how far we've come. Now, if a baby at 26 weeks or more is delivered in good condition... It has a normal outcome. They didn't even survive at that level when I started. Ventilators used to force air into babies' fragile lungs, sometimes causing long-term damage. Now, the machines are triggered by the baby's own breathing reflex. And the work of another Kiwi neonatal specialist, Auckland professor Jane Harding, has been internationally influential at improving nutrition for premature babies. Seemingly small things made big differences, Richardson says. They found a way to artificially replace the detergent-like surfactant that lubricates the lungs to prevent them collapsing, but which is not produced by the foetus until 24 to 28 weeks. They discovered nitric oxide dramatically helped babies whose blood vessels don't open up. They found skin-to-skin contact through kangaroo cuddles helped babies grow better, And giving breast milk rather than artificial milk, protected against the fatal gut inflammation, necrotizing enterocolitis. I have lots of memories of babies that I expected to not survive, that did, Richardson says. Charlotte was one of those. And it's not all science. There's a lot about the baby themselves, and what they've put up with before they're born, often, that makes them a bit more resilient. Bigger babies don't always mean fewer problems. Born at 25 weeks and 4 days, and weighing in at 825 grams, Cullen Tidy arrived on the margin of extreme prematurity. His twin sister Brooke was smaller, at 680 grams. Both ran into trouble. Brooke had a perforated stomach lining, and Cullen a perforated bowel. Both needed surgery. For their own sanity, Their parents, Claire and Ray, treated the first months like a nine-to-five job, deciding not to venture into the intensive care unit at night. You can only sit and look in an incubator for so many hours in one day, Claire says. By the time Brooke came home, she was good to go. She's never been sick since. But Cullen spent nine months in intensive care, three years on oxygen and barely grew. His first five years were a struggle for life, Claire says. Shame, Brooke chimes in, laughing. Cullen, now 18, isn't having a bar of the ribbing. People give me shit for it, but I'm like, whatever. At least I came out properly. At least I didn't die. I'm still happy. Even at 11, Cullen was still shorter than his sister Jamie, who was three years younger but a smudge of moustache signals he has well outgrown those childhood problems. He's also again outgrown Brooke, who at about 152 centimetres is now the shortest in her class. There's nothing wrong with her development, though. Brooke made her school's football first 11 at 13 and used to play first 11 hockey. Now she's off on a scholarship to Otago University to study sports management and development. And her wit is sharp as... Where does she see herself in five years? In debt, she laughs. Her only real reminder of her premature birth is her husky voice. Her voice box was nicked in an early operation. Cullen had a tougher time at school. He has dyslexia and dysgraphia, which can make reading and writing hard, but he had a reader writer for exams. He's been doing a mechanics course part time and hopes to get a panel beating apprenticeship. With four kids, Claire says they're too busy to think much about the twins' horror first 18 months. But they haven't forgotten what it took to get them this far. At 16, the twins went for their last visit with Richardson. He told them they had to do something with their lives, Claire remembers, because they cost a million dollars. So don't waste what we're giving you. Does Brooke ever think about her early start? No she says. That no is Max Berry's dream for every tiny human coming into her care, that very premature babies should have the same life prospects as everyone else. It's those first day at school photos, all scabby knees and for the grandparents' grin, that keep her going when an emergency means she misses yet another family event. That's what my entire career is predicated on. That is the utopian dream that you are not going to have this inequitable outcome based on your gestational age at birth. The key is to better replicate the amazing complexity of the womb, to let the baby's brain develop more like a fetus's. The rise and fall of blood sugars as mum eats and sleeps, the varied diet, the protection from infections and inflammation. All the drugs we need to keep preterm babies safe, antibiotics, meds for heart, meds for lungs, the fetus mostly won't have that, Barry says. So, while it's absolutely essential to keeping preterm babies alive, it changes the microbiome, which is really important for setting you on a trajectory of wellness later on. There's also plenty of room for improvement in preventing premature births. Māori, Pacific, and low socioeconomic women have more than their share of premature babies. They have higher smoking rates and worse access to healthcare. We need good quality maternal health care, not just during diabetes, not just during pregnancy, Barry says. If our women are getting good quality health care before they're even pregnant, then they're going to have healthy pregnancies. If you've got a healthy pregnancy, you're more likely to get to term. Something as simple as a urinary tract infection. If you have a lead maternity carer and access, easy. You get tested, get antibiotics. If not, and it goes untreated, It can affect the pregnancy. It just frustrates me, because you can't open the newspaper without seeing there's an inequity here, there's an inequity here. We've talked about it so much. But can we do something? While concerns remain about the long-term consequences of extreme prematurity, the research of Brian Darlow, the child health professor who started a longitudinal study in 1986, provides hope. While those 1986 babies were generally born later and bigger than today's most premature babies, advances in neonatal intensive care and other technology mean the two groups might be more similar than they seem. When he followed them up at age 28, some had significant disabilities, including cerebral palsy, blindness, quadriplegia and seizures. But most were doing extremely well. They might have slightly higher blood pressure or a slightly lower IQ. If you look at everything, Dalo says, it's slightly on the wrong side of the ledger, but still within normal range. While fewer were in relationships at age 22 or 23, that difference disappeared by 28. And even those with severe disabilities still had good self-esteem. They really are functioning adults that are doing very well and contributing to society just like their peers, says Dalo. To me... That's the thing that comes across so clearly. That's why it's such a joy to see them. Of the seven children Stuff has followed for the past 16 years, only two bear no mark of their shock entry into the world. When Cameron Lee and his twin brother Cody celebrated their 21st birthdays last year, their early arrival didn't rate a mention. Cameron can't even remember how premature they were. Born at 24 and a half weeks, Cameron almost died the first night and was deathly ill for two months. He spent his first nine months hooked up to an oxygen tank. But the only reminder of those rugged months is Cameron's inability to breathe quietly through his nose, a legacy of the oxygen prongs. He's doing a construction apprenticeship, learning demolition, office fit-outs, and how to build decks, including helping with his parents' one. He's still at home but plans to move out with his girlfriend this year. Is it weird to think he might not have made it? A little bit, but I'm alive, so... What stands out in the 16 years we've followed these families is the extraordinary commitment of the parents to giving their children the best possible start, and the emotional cost that months and years of uncertainty and worry has wrought. Saul Gallagher also turned 21 last year. While he was born in June, he celebrates his birthday in October, when he finally left hospital. That's because the date he arrived so unexpectedly into the world is still a painful one for his mother, Yvonne. I can still come out in a rash of trauma around June, Yvonne says. It's ridiculous. While she was so grateful to take home a living baby when others didn't, She sometimes falls into the what-if trap. They are such great kids, she says, but have we given them a life harder than it needed to be? They are all left with a package of some sort, physically, often function-wise, left with something, challenged, that might not have been if they had just been able to cook properly. Born at 23 and a half weeks, Saul had dyspraxia, which he calls a bit of a hard hitter when it came to being a kid. He couldn't snake and swerve to play tag. At 15, he still couldn't tie his shoelace. But he had a great childhood, and he's accepted that being premature is just part of his makeup. If something new happens and I'm like, why can't I X or why can't I Y, I can be like, that might have something to do with the prematurity. Or it might just be me being a clown. It certainly hasn't held him back. He's studying politics and psychology at Auckland University, and reckons he might go into policy advising. He reads books about ancient myths, murder mysteries and science fiction, and plays strategic video games. He's endlessly grateful for the support of his mother and the doctors and nurses who saved his life. People who say they don't trust medical professionals because they've done three Google searches and covered themselves in essential oils is kind of garbage reasoning, he says. What would he say to parents faced with the impossible decision of whether to resuscitate a very premature baby. I very much enjoy being alive, so that's kind of off the table, to just say, get rid of it. But as for raising the kid, try not to treat them differently, but at the same time, do educate them as to why they could be different. India Burns says parents should realise the first 10 years will be hard, but not give up. Just because they're premature doesn't mean you should not have them. And Max says, even if they do end up with significant disabilities, that's okay. It's fine with people who have a learning disorder or a disability. You're normal. You're loved. I would not think, I've got disabled kids. You live your life. You've got mates who care about you. Back at Charlotte's place, Liz Rose acknowledges the constant grieving process. The wondering what might have been, could have been. If Charlotte gets hurt, all those awful memories come rushing back. But sitting staring at that incubator almost 17 years ago, her most optimistic expectations would have fallen short of the Bigfoot teen beside her on the couch. I think we're just incredibly lucky to have such a normal, happy human who we're very proud of.
0: That was premise on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Nicky MacDonald and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.